science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's a lot arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, and obesium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protectinium, and indium, and gallium. Welcome aboard. Time to put your thinking caps on. What is the connection between Stalin, the uh, Soviet dictator, and uh, crab legs? The connection between Stalin and crab legs. If you know the answer to that, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also text us at 514-800. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. And uh, Sunday afternoons, I uh, sit with you here, talk some science, answer some questions, hopefully tantalize your brain a little bit with some of my questions. Before we get on to other matters, as we will, let's talk a little bit about horses going crazy. Well, the farmer noticed uh, first his horses were kind of out in the field, stumbling around in circles. And uh, within a few days, he noticed that they were drooling excessively and also they were becoming lethargic, but occasionally uh, they showed fits of aggressive behavior. The farmer actually knew what was going on here. He thought that the horses had eaten local weeds and were suffering from local weed poisoning. And therein lies an interesting story, actually several interesting stories. There are about 300 species of this uh, hardy perennial plant, and many of them produce a chemical we call swainsonine. It's an alkaloid. Uh, Alkaloids are uh, naturally occurring organic compounds that are characterized by having nitrogen in the molecular structure, along with several carbon rings in the structure. And uh, this toxic alkaloid, swainsonine, is responsible for making the animals act loco. That's the Spanish word for crazy. Cattle, horses, sheep, goats, and wildlife are attracted to local weed in the early spring and in the late fall. And there's a reason for that, because the weed is green while other plants are brown. And animals, of course, are attracted to green crops because they seem fresher. Well, estimates are that every year, livestock producers in North America lose over $300 million uh, due to the death of livestock that are poisoned by local weed. That's, that's a lot of money. Unfortunately, there's no treatment for locism, and uh, farmers have to be on the lookout in the fields where they allow their animals to graze to see if there are local weeds there. Very difficult to control. I mean, sometimes they try to control them with herbicides, with with uh, weed killers. Uh, but the, the trouble is that uh, the seeds of the uh, local weeds can lie dormant in the soil for a long time. So even if you wipe out some of the plants, they eventually will uh, regrow from the seeds. Well, all right. What about the interesting features of this? You know, plants require a variety of nutrients for proper growth. And one of these is selenium. Local weeds are unusual because they require more selenium than other plants. And indeed, you know, when you see uh, flourishing local weeds in in the field, uh, it means that there's a lot of selenium in the soil. In large doses, selenium is toxic and it can present a problem 
to animals that feed on it, totally independent of uh, the suasonin content of, uh, you know, of, of the weed. But people, like plants, also require selenium for health. They don't require a lot, only about 50 micrograms a day. Selenium is incorporated into some two dozen uh, proteins, and these proteins play critical roles in reproduction, thyroid hormone metabolism, synthesis of DNA in our cells, and they also uh, act as uh, these proteins act as uh, protective substances against uh, oxidation and, and infection. Getting enough selenium is generally not a problem uh, because it's uh, easily found in muscle meats and seafood, grains, nuts, dairy products. So very unlikely for anyone in North America to have a, a deficiency. However, deficiency can occur in areas where the soil is deficient in selenium. And that was dramatically demonstrated by some fascinating research in China. Starting around 1935, scientists noted an unusual number of deaths due to weakened heart muscles. And that happened in a particular region of, of uh, a province of China known as the Qishan region. And by 1967, Qishan disease, as the condition came to be called, was found to be more widespread, but still limited to certain geographic areas. People who had once lived in these regions but moved away were unaffected. Well, that suggested that there was something environmental as a causative agent. And uh, so they started to sample the soil, the food, the water in these areas. Uh, and they also compared hair samples from people living in these areas. And they compared these with people who had moved away or who, were, who had been born elsewhere. Well, it turned out that concentrations of selenium in soil and food, as well as in people's hair, were lower in the areas affected by Kishin disease. And this raised the possibility that selenium supplements could be instrumental in offering protection. After animal studies had shown that sodium selenite could be safely used, residents were given the supplement under medical supervision. Within 10 years, enough data had been collected to show that such supplementation was effective for reducing the rate of Cashin disease. In North America, diet surveys have shown that people are getting enough selenium and we don't see overt deficiency. However, some studies have suggested that people in the highest category of selenium intake have a lower risk of some cancers than those in the lowest category. Randomized controlled trials of cancer prevention using selenium supplements have had mixed results. Some suggested benefit, others did not. Uh, there was no risk associated with supplements. Uh, these are usually in the range of 200 micrograms of, a day. The only problem with trying to increase selenium intake is for people who decide to feast on Brazil nuts, because each of those can contain about 90 micrograms per nut. And since the toxic effect of selenium is around 700 micrograms, uh, you know, a few Brazil nuts a day is fine, but you don't want to be eating uh, handfuls of these. And um, if someone overdoses of selenium, they will start to have a garlic breath and a metallic taste in the mouth, and their nails become brittle, and um, the hair uh, starts to fall out as well. But as I said, in North America, generally, uh, we don't see a deficiency or an excess of, of uh, selenium. But it is interesting to uh, connect uh, the selenium to, uh, to the moon. <laughs> Why the moon? Well, selenium had important applications long before its effects on health were noted. 
it was discovered by famed Swedish chemist uh, Berzelius back in 1817 as a contaminant in iron sulfide. He was using that to produce sulfuric acid. Because of its similar properties to tellurium, an element that had been discovered some 20 years earlier and which had been named for the Latin earth, he decided to name the new element selenium from the Greek selen for moon. So there's an interesting connection between local weed and moon. Fascinating story. And uh, I also had an interesting email sent to me by uh, James Bond. No, no, not 007. This is James Bond, who we have spoken to on the show here. He's one of our regular listeners. And uh, he wanted to give me some more information on Swainson. Interesting story. And uh, in 1992, apparently an Alaskan um, explorer who wanted to show that he could subsist on whatever he could find out in the wild uh, ended up dead. And it turns out that he may have uh, mistaken some uh, weeds uh, for edible ones. And he was uh, overcome by the Swainsonine. And uh, it's an interesting story. And uh, it comes from Chemistry World. And if... uh, any of you are interested, Chemistry World is a, a, an excellent magazine produced in Britain, and they also have a, a podcast. So if you want to check this out, you just uh, go to uh, www.chemistryworld.com, and you can sign up for the podcast. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Hey, how you doing? Okay. Uh, so uh, I'm a farrier. I shoe horses for a living. And uh, I noticed your topic on selenium. Yeah. And according to uh, an equine nutritionist that I deal with, uh, all the, the, the earth in eastern North America produces hay that is actually very low in selenium. And because of that, selenium is, is added to uh, extruded horse feed in order for them to get the proper amounts in their diet. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I I didn't know that. I mean, I'm not a specialist in horse feed. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, that's interesting. I'll, I'll look into that a bit more. Um, obviously, those are not horses that are eating local weed. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. Uh, that's why I would be, I would be surprised if, if local weed requires selenium to grow. I would be surprised if in our area that we would have any. Yeah, it's uh, uh, mostly in Western Canada and Western U.S. that that you find local weed. That would make more sense. Yeah. Okay, thanks. You're welcome. All right. You know, uh, I I write a column every week for the Montreal Gazette, and other newspapers uh, often pick it up as well. And uh, recently I wrote one on the uh, uh, new uh, burgers that uh, try to duplicate meat. Uh, the Beyond Meat Burger and the Impossible Burger. And uh, I can tell you that that article has raised uh, a lot of interest, uh, a lot of comments. And uh, I've uh, been offered all kinds of uh, veggie burgers to <laughs> taste uh, after writing that, that article. So I, I'd be interested in having your opinion as well, because I, I suspect that some of our listeners here have tried uh, many of these burgers. And uh, if you have any opinions, I'd, I'd really like to hear that. Or if you make veggie burgers yourself, 
uh, which you think are comparable to the ones that are commercially available, uh, I'd like to hear. So I'd like to hear if, if you've tried the Beyond Meat Burger. Uh, that's one I, I wrote about. Or especially if you've been to the States and you've tried the Impossible Burger. I would really like to have your opinion. So 514-790-0800, 514-790-0800, or you can text to 514-800. And uh, I, uh, I became interested, you know, in, in, um, in those burgers uh, for several reasons. Uh, one is, uh, you know, I wanted to see the science behind it, you know, how they were trying to duplicate meat. But the other is, because, you know, uh, that... Uh, Animal agriculture is is not environmentally friendly. I mean, we know this. Uh, it is much more environmentally friendly to eat the crops directly without using the middleman, which is the uh, the animal. But I I got especially interested in the Impossible Burger, which is uh, uh, so far not available in Canada, as far as I know, because of the science behind it. Uh, the company that makes it, uh, Impossible Foods, was founded in 2011 by Dr. Patrick Brown. And uh, Dr. Patrick Brown is uh, uh, very well known in the scientific community. He, he has both a medical degree and a PhD in biochemistry. And he's the re recipient of a, a number of, of awards. But back in 2010, he left Stanford University, and he had been a professor there, because he became very concerned that raising animals to produce food was an environmental disaster. And uh, he cited greenhouse gas emissions, energy demands, inefficient use of land. These were the problems. And he decided that the best way to reduce the environmental cost of raising animals was to offer a plant-based product that could compete with meat in look, in smell, and in taste. Of course, in order to do that, he had to determine uh, what uh, the smell of meat and the taste of meat was, was due to. And that was a very difficult question to answer because meat is a very, very complex collage of, of proteins, uh, peptides, amino acids, fats, vitamins, minerals, uh, naturally occurring steroids and amines and sugars and nucleotides, of course, because it contains DNA. And... Uh, all of these engage in various reactions when you cook meat. And cooked meat is even more complex. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of compounds that are found in cooked meat. Well, anyway, using sophisticated instrumental techniques, Dr. Brown and his team analyzed the volatile compounds that are released when meat is being cooked. And his attention was drawn to one of these, heme, which is a breakdown product of the oxygen-carrying molecule hemoglobin. And this was present in abundance. And Brown suspected that it was a major player in the flavor game. Well, he had a lot of scientific background, of course, as I, I mentioned. So he explored where heme could be extracted from. And he knew that, that there are hemoglobin analogs that are present in plants. One of these, called lechemoglobin, from legume and the Greek word heme for blood, can be found in the roots of clover or soybeans. And these became a candidate for imparting meat flavor and color to a plant-based burger. And uh, this, this was the basis of the Impossible Burger. Uh, apparently, as I said, I haven't tasted this one yet, but it tastes like meat, it looks like meat, and it crumbles uh, like meat. 
so I, I'm looking forward to tasting that one. That's why I, I'd like to hear from someone who did. But the one that I did taste is the uh, Beyond Meat Burger, which is available here. A&W has it. Tim Hortons has a version of it. And you can now buy it in supermarkets. Now, this is not the same concoction. This is made from pea protein. And it's mixed together with some fat, canola oil, and, and uh, coconut oil, and spices, etc. And uh, I found it to be surprisingly good. The only drawback is the amount of sodium, which is quite significant. Uh, when you buy uh, A&W's Beyond Meat Burger, there's about 1,100 milligrams of sodium. But interestingly enough, most of that comes from the bun and the condiments, the patty itself has only about 390 milligrams. And that's why some people are, are uh, buying the patty and asking that it be wrapped in lettuce and leave out the bun and leave out the sauce, in which case it's, it's uh, uh, quite low in sodium. Of course, at that point, it might be low in taste too because so much of the burger comes from, taste of the burger comes from the, uh, the sauce that's put on it and, and the various kinds of, of condiments. But anyway, this is an exploding world, uh, the plant-based um, hamburgers, and all companies are trying to jump um, on this. So if you have any views about this, if you have tasted any of them, if you have specific ones that you like, if you have formulas yourself that, that you've made, uh, the Veggie Burger domain, uh, give us a call. Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, the question that I started the show off with today, looking for the link between uh, crab legs and Stalin, the former Soviet dictator. If you know the answer to that, either you text us at 514-800 or call 514-790-0800. The link between crab legs and Stalin. Fascinating story, I can assure you. Okay, well... Uh, a lot of people have texted in about the burgers. Uh, I'm still looking to speak to someone live about them, but let, let's just go to the texts. Uh, um, I have tried the Beyond Meat Burger A&W and found it delicious. I also bought the patties at IGA and didn't care for it, one caller says. I'm surprised by that uh, because they are the same thing. So it basically shows that what you're really tasting in the A&W burger is the condiments, the sauce, etc., and I'm sure that if you buy the ones at IGA and make them up uh, the same way the A&W does, they will taste the, the same. And someone else comments that the Beyond Meat patties are merely glorified falafel balls in different shapes. Well, not exactly. Uh, of course, there's some commonality there, but uh, uh, falafel is made from chickpeas. And uh, the Beyond Meat Burger is made from the yellow or, or the split pea. I mean, they're both legumes or in the same family. Uh, but also falafel, of course, is deep fried. 
and these burgers are, are grilled. They're not uh, deep fried. Uh, someone also mentions that uh, they has sampled a very good veggie burger at Orange Julep. Uh, I've never tried that. Uh, Orange Julep is an interesting place. For those of you who are not in Montreal, uh, Orange Julep is, is sort of a, a local landmark. And it's a big orange ball. It's several stories high. And their um, specialty is this beverage, which is made with uh, orange juice, uh, I think milk, some egg, uh, of course, the secret formula. No one knows what's really in there, but they do sell uh, apparently veggie burgers. I've not, uh, I've not tried that. Uh, then uh, some comments about selenium. Uh, James uh, Bond, who originally alerted me to the Alaskan explorer, uh, now tells me that there's a bit more to the story. I'll have to check this out because apparently when they looked at the, the, the plants that uh, at first they thought that the uh, guy had been eating and believed that they contained swainsonine, uh, when they actually tested them, they, they did not. So I, I have to look into that because the mystery uh, remains. But then someone else said, I thought eating many Brazil nuts was not a problem for selenium overdose because it's naturally occurring in the nut and therefore not toxic. Uh, this certainly warrants a comment uh, because it buys into the, the notion that many people have that if something is naturally occurring, it cannot be toxic. That, of course, is not, not the case at all. Uh, it doesn't matter where the selenium comes from, whether it's used as an additive in a supplement or if it's found in, in Brazil nuts, it will have the same physiological effect. So uh, you can certainly overdose on selenium by eating uh, Brazil nuts. You don't want to overdo that. On the other hand, eating a couple of Brazil nuts um, a day is probably not a bad idea uh, because it will ensure that you're getting enough selenium, but you don't want to um, overdo it. Okay, uh, let me go to uh, Gabriel, who has some comment about the burger. Hey, Gabriel. Yes. Uh, hi, Dr. Joe. Uh, hi. Thank you for taking my call. I love your show. You're brilliant. I always learn something. Uh, I love to listen to you. I tried the uh, Beyond Burger and stood. I've been a, a vegetarian for 20 years. Uh, the only thing, like you said, the salt issue, you have to be careful with that. I have, high, I have high blood pressure and I have to be careful with that. So that's the only thing. I wanted to make a, a, a side comment, and then maybe you, look, you can look into this, is uh, why are they spraying the skies? It's what they call chemtrails. And it's, I've seen there's two planes, and it's on a constant, uh, it's happening every week. And I said, this is a strange, like who gave them permission? And I, I, know, I know the sun is stronger, because if you go out in the sun and you're, you're out for 15 minutes, the exposure is incredible compared to what it was 20 years ago. Okay, well, okay but, let, me, let me first of all uh, get back to the burgers for a moment. But did you like the Beyond Meat burger? Yeah, it was good. It was yeah, good. okay, yeah. And as I said, it, it, the salt is an, is an issue. Now, the, the contrails, as they're called, and we've talked about these uh, several times in, in, on the show before, uh, because there's this theory out there, uh, you know, that there's some sort of conspiracy that, that they're spraying chemicals into the air for various reasons. Some theorists say that it is to calm down the population. Uh, the, uh, you know, there's drugs there. Others are saying that they're spraying in order to try to protect the ozone layer or, or to reduce the greenhouse effect. None of that is true. What you are seeing are tiny, tiny crystals of ice. That's what contrails are. When the airplane burns its fuel, 
the major products of combustion are carbon dioxide and water. The carbon dioxide, of course, you don't see. But because they're flying at an altitude of over 30,000 feet, the temperature is very cold, and the water instantly freezes into tiny crystals. So that is, that is what you're seeing. There's no conspiracy to undermine the health of the public, and uh, they're not spraying any sort of chemical to, to uh, have atmospheric effects. The only time that I'm aware of that any kind of, of chemical has ever been sprayed, hoping to get some, some sort of effect, was uh, spraying... Um, silver iodide into clouds uh, in order to uh, form little crystals around which water droplets would form to to initiate rain. And in areas where there's a lot of of, uh, dryness, but clouds are there, but no rain is coming, seeding the clouds will sometimes initiate rain. But uh, that is the only time that anything has been sprayed on purpose into clouds. Okay, well, thanks very much for for uh, for that comment. Okay, let me see what else people have to say. Hi, welcome to the show. Yeah, go ahead. You're on the air. Hello. Hi. Hello. Uh, are yellow beans and green beans yeah. closely related? Is there any uh, nutritional difference between them? And if so, what would that be? Oh, it's insignificant nutritional difference. One of them would have more more uh, beta carotene than the other, but it's insignificant. It is, and. Very similar in chemical composition. <clears throat> Both are in the family of what we call cruciferous vegetables. And uh, when you eat those, uh, upon chewing them, you release a compound called sulforaphane, which has uh, supposedly beneficial qualities in terms of reducing the risk of cancer. Uh, but, uh, you know, the studies on these things are quite soft. What we do know is that eating lots of fruits and vegetables is a very good idea. No, no. I mean, they eat the cauliflower, eat the broccoli. Uh, of course, one thing that they have in common is that they're both gas-producing because they contain a lot of, uh, of fiber, but they're great vegetables to eat. So do we eat vegetables of various colors, different colors? Yes, and they, the colors, of course, represent different compounds, I mean, obviously, and uh, they fall generally into two categories. They are either anthocyanins or uh, carotenoids. And those are distinguished by molecular structure. The anthocyanins in general tend to to be polycyclic, meaning they have many uh, rings made up of carbon atoms, whereas the carotenoids are straight chain compounds. But both of them have antioxidant properties. And uh, uh, nobody really knows, you know, why uh, people who have diets that are high in fruits and vegetables tend to be uh, healthier, because fruits and vegetables contain such a, a wide array of substances. But suspicion is that the anthocyanins and the carotenoids are the, are the main uh, uh, factors, uh, because they can neutralize uh, free radicals in, in the body. So eat your green peas, eat your yellow peas, uh, eat your... Uh, broccoli, eat your cauliflower, uh, whatever fruits and vegetables you can get your hands on, eat them. And uh, if you can eat the veggie burgers instead of the meat burgers, well, that's just adding to to a a plant-based diet. But you also have to be careful about the sodium content of those. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science front. 
Oh yeah, question I had. Is the incendiary green wildfire from Game of Thrones an alchemist fantasy, or does it have a realistic equivalent in chemistry? Okay, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I have never seen uh, an episode of Great Game of Thrones. Uh, I know people tell me that I should. I, I just have never gotten into that. Uh, fantasies of that kind are not really my kind of thing. But uh, maybe I'll have to now take a look into this if there is some sort of alchemical stuff in there because that may be of, of interest. All right, another question that I can answer. Someone wants me to elaborate on the difference between vegetable oil and canola oil as far as health goes. Where, of course, canola is a vegetable oil. Uh, canola, uh, the name comes from Canadian oil because uh, it's a variety of rapeseed plant uh, that, that was uh, basically uh, attained by crossbreeding uh, here in Canada. And uh, it's a very, very good oil to cook with because it is... Uh, Relative to other oils, it's low in saturated fat. It's got a good dose of mono and polyunsaturated fats. Now, there are many other vegetable oils out there. Uh, olive oil is uh, probably, the, in terms of nutrition, extra virgin olive oil is, is, is the one that is best nutritionally. Uh, but a lot of people don't like to cook with it. They don't like the taste, but I, I, th I find it fine. I cook with it, and I also use it on, on salads. So I would say that you know, if you're going to fry, of course, you shouldn't be frying too often anyway, Canola oil is a very good oil for frying, but when you're adding stuff, uh, when you're adding oil to, to uh, a salad, I would go for the extra virgin um, olive oil. Someone else wants to know, back to the green yellow bean business, if uh, anything is added to these at the plant or are they the same bean? They, they are not the same bean. They are a different variety of the, of the bean, but uh, nutritionally they are very, very similar. But no, nothing is added to change the color uh, of these. All right, I think Matthew has a comment. Hi, Matthew. Hi there, Dr. Joe. We've been uh, listening to you for a little while. Uh, just a couple of uh... Of comments, I think I may have an idea of uh, that that Stalin uh, crab leg uh, okay. question that you had. I thought I heard this in the news uh, a couple of years ago, quite a while ago. Um, I believe that Stalin, uh, from what I remember, brought in crabs to offset um, a famine that was going on in the Cold War. I don't know if that's correct, and it caused some kind of an overpopulation in the king crab. Uh, species. I don't know if that's That correct. is 100% correct. Uh, during yeah. the Stalin era, uh, there was a lack of food in the Soviet Union, and uh, Stalin had the idea of importing uh, crabs uh, from Alaska, actually. And uh, the, the crabs lived very, very well in the, in the Soviet waters. And then they spread and they spread, and now they spread all the way to Norway. And there are millions and millions of these crabs, and they eat everything. In, in the ocean, and uh, they are upsetting the ecosystem. And although apparently they taste delicious, people can't eat them fast enough to compensate for what they're eating, what the crabs are eating in the water. So you're quite right about that. Yeah, very good. Yes. I, if I have a small question for you, if I may, on another topic. Yeah. Um, we've been hearing a lot about glyphosate, the, one of the chemicals. In yeah, glyphosate. Glyph glyphosate, it's pronounced. Oh, excuse me, excuse me. Um, and we've been uh, hearing a lot about it uh, in the coming up in uh, cereals and that type of thing. What's your what's your take on that? Uh, that okay, whole, uh, the the the, the uh, scare about traces of glyphosate found in cereal. I, I I put no no weight on 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 that at all in in terms of it being meaningful. 
Uh, glyphosate uh, or Roundup, which is uh, you know Monsanto or now Bayer's trade name for for it, is the most widely used herbicide in the world, and it's been in the news for various reasons. Uh, plants are developing resistance to it, and there are concerns about toxicity. But those concerns are, in case of occupational exposure, farmers who are using it in huge amounts, very often improperly, where they're not protected. And you may have seen these uh, reports of these trials where uh, the, the claim was that people had gotten non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and got huge settlements. Well, it's debatable whether or not glyphosate really was the cause, but even if it was the cause, these were cases where they were exposed to huge amounts in an occupational setting. And that has nothing to do with the, the parts per billion or parts per trillion that may be found in, in uh, our food supply. Our food supply is composed of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of different compounds, both natural occurring and, and, uh, and synthetic. Many pesticides. And many pesticides, of course, are, are natural compounds that are produced by plants. So I think that the trace amounts of glyphosate is, is, is just a non-issue in our food supply. Great. Okay. Thank you so much for clearing that up. Okay. And, uh, I mean, these judgments that have come out, you know, with the uh, millions of dollars, uh, there was one for um, a guy who worked for some school commission, and he was spraying glyphosate uh, uh, day in, day out, and by his own admission, he didn't have proper protection. And years later, he was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and the jury awarded him uh, millions of dollars, and much of that was impunitive uh, damages to the company. Uh, because they said that the company did not uh, make the information available that there was a potential risk. Well, I, the information actually is available. It was it's on the label uh, of, of the of the bottles, but you know they claim that it wasn't uh, strong enough. Uh, you know the the scare about not using uh, proper equipment. You know protective equipment was was not stringent enough. Whatever. Uh, but even if there is disconnection to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a very, very tenuous one. Uh, that has really nothing to do with, with uh, you know, the, the tiny amounts that may be found in our uh, our food supply. And, you know, these, these were jury decisions where you're asking uh, people who are essentially taken off the street with no scientific background, and you're asking them to uh, adjudicate over very, very complex scientific matters. And uh, I, I just don't think that that is the way that you know this this should be done uh, this should be up to uh, an expert uh, panel and if you look at the expert panels that have looked at the use of uh, glyphosate around the world uh, whether it's health canada whether it's epa or fda whether it's the uh, german uh, agency or the australian agency uh, they've all come to the conclusion that uh, there is no issue with the uh, tiny amounts of glyphosate that may show up in the in the food supply uh, but uh, this controversy is not going to go away uh, because, uh, of course, you're looking at a, a multinational company with very, very deep pockets, and uh, people are jumping on the bandwagon trying to get their share of, of these kind of, uh, of supplements. I think there are many other things in life that are worth worrying about other than the trace amounts of that one particular chemical in our, um, our food supply. 
Anyway, uh, unfortunately, that's that's about it. We've just about run out of time. Uh, let me just answer one other question that has just been texted in. Is rubbing alcohol still flammable on surfaces when it is dried? No, once the alcohol has evaporated, there's nothing left on the um, on the surface. And are there any toxicity issues with wearing sunscreen every day? That's a very complex question. Aside from allergic reactions, I don't think that there's any problem. I think you may have seen studies that some sunscreen ingredients are absorbed into the bloodstream. That's not a surprise because anything you put on the skin, some of it will be absorbed. The amounts are very, very little. It is far more important to wear sunscreen as a protection. And uh, anyone who worries about the traces that show up in the bloodstream and is therefore not using it, Uh, is likely to pay the penalty. In any case, that is it. We have run smack out of time. You've been listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Check out our website, www.mcgill.ca slash OSS. You can sign up there for our weekly newsletter. And we, of course, will be back with you same time, same stations next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.